When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. Welcome to the podcast. What we do here on the show is we recap every episode of Westworld. We dive in-depth to the plot of each episode, but we don't spoil anything from future episodes. That includes anything from the next time on previews that HBO shows. You can find more episodes of this podcast at DecodingWestworld.com. Email us at DecodingWestworld at gmail.com. Today we're going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 5, Akane no Mai, I think is how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Akane no Mai? Um, so this episode was uh, written by Gina Atwater and Dan Dietz, and it was directed by Craig Zobel. Are you a fan of, uh, of Craig Zobel's work, John Robinson? Do you ever watch uh, Compliance? I do not watch Compliance. That is an, an extremely polarizing uh, film, uh, and like it caused like a, a lot of walkouts. It's based on a true story. Uh, I found it to is be a very two compl- women on a phone. Did I make that up? Uh, no, that's that's pretty close. It's basically like okay. a guy calls this woman uh, on a phone and like pretends to be from corporate or pretends to be you know like a security like a police officer or whatever, and then simply by talking to her is able to convince her to do uh, you know terrible things. So uh, it's kind of this idea, uh, like a, a modern day Milgram study of like how people can be. Uh, swayed by even the the perception of authority anyway i I thought it was a really interesting movie Uh, but since he made compliance in 2012 he's since gone on to direct uh, a bunch of other interesting stuff including z for zechariah and several episodes of the leftovers i really Uh, liked z for zechariah and his work on the leftovers he also did american gods which i think you probably are a fan of as well so um yeah really cool cool uh director and uh cool to see his work here on this episode of westworld um before we dive into season two episode five though joanna let's talk about some of the feedback we got from last week's episode of the podcast you can always email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com we got a lot of emails in the last week, Joanna, did we not? So many. So many emails. Thank you, guys. This is like really exciting. I feel like we're really in it now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we episode are really format, in we are the like, shit now. We are all the way down to quote Jim Delos. Here you go. <laughs> so I think the number one email we got probably was about Juliet's suicide. Now, uh, let's recap a little bit. Juliet is William, a.k.a. the man in black's wife. 
And in season one, uh, at the end of season one, William, a.k.a. the Man in Black, played by Ed Harris, confessed to Teddy that his wife had taken the wrong pills and died, but that during the funeral, William, a.k.a. the Man in Black, played by Ed Harris's daughter, had told him that it wasn't an accident, right? Uh, And so, presumably, his wife took the the pills on purpose and died. But last week's episode had a bunch of imagery featuring uh, a a bloody uh, bathtub full of water and, like, a person's arm hanging off the side of it. Right. And there were a lot of people who emailed in saying, well... Um, probably the person took pills and just passed out in the bathtub and uh, and the, the water was clear. But we have gone back, Joanna, you and I have gone back, we've looked at the episode, and there is a, a shot of a bathtub full of blood in it, right? Yeah. So, There's definitely blood in the tub. It's not that the tub is red. You can see the white lip of the tub, and then the water is, like, bloody. And also the hand that's over the side of the tub which may or may not be red, uh, the hand itself, uh, to my eye, has blood on it. Right. So the question so. is, like, why Why would, you know, HBO show this previously on that shows uh, William, a.k.a. the Man in Black, played by Ed Harris, talking about how his wife took pills to, and died, but then show us a flashback in which uh, she presumably slits her wrists and dies. Like, why, why the incongruity and why call attention to it? Any uh, any suspicions, Joanna, or is this kind of an ongoing mystery, you think? It's an ongoing mystery. I just want to, like, clarify a few things. Like, you beautifully summarized it. Something that William said, William the Man in Black, Ed Harris, said in season one was, you know, my wife took the wrong pills, fell asleep in the bath, right? Yep. In this flashback, we see a pair of, like, black-clad pants and, you know, uh, shoes going up the stairs. Presumably, that's William discovering the body. And so, like, if he discovered her in the bathtub with blood in it, there's no way that he would say she took the wrong pills and fell asleep in the bath. And then we were talking about this before the uh, before we recorded, Dave, to try to, like, make sure we are on the same page with this. Because really, guys, we got so many emails and tweets about suicide. I, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> a very cheery week we had. But um, the, like, there's no, there's no way that William, the man in black, was lying to Teddy about... She took the wrong pills and fell asleep in the bath because he's confessing to Teddy. It's a confession scene of like, I thought this happened, but then my daughter told me the real story at the funeral. There's no reason for the man in black to lie in that moment. And that's that's a narrative thing that keeps coming up in in this show and like Star Wars, Last Jedi and Game of Thrones that people are just going like, well, why? Well, maybe that character's lying. And I, I just like maybe. But but from my view, that's really bad storytelling to have Ed Harris the man in black William in a confessional mode to Teddy lying like, and, and, and the similarly people think he's lying about Logan being dead. And once again, I just, I don't, I don't think that those are moments for lies, but I I could be wrong. I'm I'm much more simple. So a lot of people emailed in and said, well, maybe Logan's not dead. Maybe William is lying about Logan being dead in, in the, uh, when he's talking with, uh, Jim Delos. Yeah, and I mean, Joanna, you really did plant the seeds for this uh, when you said a character is not dead until you see their body hit the floor, right? So the, you're you're now reaping what you sow when it comes to the fan theory. I guess you're theory. right. I guess you're right. But um, uh, but but I think you're you're right. Like, well, I, I mean, I actually think that is a far more believable scenario that um, William is lying about that because you know 
he's clearly trying to inflict some uh, some kind of pain on Jim Dellis's robot version. Uh, but and I so, think the truth inflicts the pain on on like look at what a failure you are. Like, I think the truth will do that. But anyway, that's okay. We can agree to disagree on that. But we do agree that there's something weird going on with the suicide. We got a lot of emails about it. Some people are like like a lot of people are like. A lot of people take pills before they slit their wrists, but I'm just saying, like, then there's no way that William could have or thought it was an accident, right? right? And then, and then some people are like, well, maybe that's not Juliet's Juliet's suicide we're seeing. Maybe it's someone else's suicide. There's this whole theory that it's Emily's suicide, and the Emily that we see in the park is wrong. I was like, you're telling me there's two. Like, I really think Westworld is not trying to be that confusing, but once again, I could be wrong. But I really think there's. Something like just tiny bit off with the suicide that really could just be a continuity error more than anything else. But um, it did prompt a lot of emails, might even prompt more emails. I did want to talk also about the Jim Delos-William confrontation, uh, if we have a minute to do that. Let's. Um, We got a lot of emails saying like, we, we were jokingly talking about like why not jokingly, but we were like, Oh, he left, he left the Jim Delos robot alive, uh, so that we could discover him later. And a bunch of people wrote in and say, no, he obviously left the Jim Delos robot alive because he's mad at him and wants to torture him. (laughs) That is like definitely true, but that's like the, that's the text of the show. And, and Dave and I did not explicitly say it, but we agree with you that that is true, that there is spite involved. And something that some people have pointed out to me that I really like is this idea that, uh, William patterned himself off of Jim Delos. Like William, once he came out of the park, young William looked at Jim Delos as someone that he like wanted to pattern himself on. So he started to dress like him because Jim Delos wore all black all the time. Uh, and he started to talk to him. There's something that Jim Delos says in that scene. I think it's in episode two when they're in the park and William's giving him the pitch on what the park should be. And Jim Delos goes like, no one's ever talked to me that no one ever talks to me that way anymore. So and gets away with it or something like that. And someone pointed out to me that in season one, Ed Harris's character, William said the exact same thing to someone else. No one talks to me that way. So it's sort of like he, William modeled himself on Jim Delos and then he had this thing happen in his life with, which is his wife committing suicide, him needing to reckon with the person that he's become and him then getting angry at this Jim Delos robot of like, I made myself into you and I hate you because I hate myself. And so when he goes in there and he's so angry at this Jim Delos bot, it's a large in large part because he's so angry at himself and what he le- allowed himself to become. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, he left the robot alive. Also so that Bernard and Elsie could find it later because <laughs> <laughs> the show needed the robot to be alive. But um and the last thing I'll say about that is uh, someone someone just very recently tweeted at me that uh, according to the sort of um, tablet that um, you had been asking me about the timeline on it, according to the tablet that Elsie's looking at, um, I think it said like 14 days since. Mm. So they think it's been two weeks since uh, Jim Delos, uh, William walked out and left Jim Delos there and Elsie uh, and Bernard going in there. So Gotcha. Two weeks. All right. Uh, yeah. A lot of a uh, lot of fans of opinions. You know, Joanna. Last week we discussed also this theory that 
Juliet is the mind egg that Bernard pockets at the end of the last episode, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think you know to to add on to that, I don't know if we if we quite put it in this way, but the idea one of the ideas is that like the reason uh, why William's daughter is in the park is to is to find a host version of her mom or to create a host version of her mom, right? Um, And I thought that was kind of an interesting idea that because her mom was wrongfully taken from her that, you know, uh, she might be looking for a host version of her mom. So I don't know if we put it quite this way in the last episode, but just wanted to say, like, that theory does strike me as very appealing. Uh, Of course, we don't find out in this episode whether or not that's the case, so... Anything else you want to bring up about uh, last week's episode before we move on, Joanna? Uh, I just want to say with love that that is not a theory that I ascribe to. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the last thing I think I want to talk about um, is this idea of immortality and Dr. Robert Ford. Um, uh, you know, we, we discussed one of the uh, the mind day, the red pearl, the red ball, whatever we want to call it, that, that uh, Bernard Pockets. Um, being Arnold Ford, meaning we will see Anthony Hopkins again on Westworld before all is said and done. Um, I have said that I don't like this theory, but you know, that doesn't mean it's not a true thing that's going to happen. But what some listeners have pointed out uh, is that Ford has already achieved some kind of immortality, uh, because he has sort of dispersed himself uh, throughout the park in the network of the park. So we see him speaking through these various robots like young Ford or Lawrence's daughter or um, Giancarlo Esposito's character and Pariah, you know, so like, or he's still telling, he's still controlling Clementine. Like people are like, Oh, Ford has to be alive if he's still controlling these various robots. And I just don't think that's the case. I think it can all happen through code. And I think that's the sort of that's the immortality that Ford has achieved for himself um, is a sort of code based. I'm in the I'm in the system uh, immortality. Right. Or even kind of related to that. I I don't know if this is quite exactly the same thing you're saying, but there is this concept that uh, one day one day if we upload our consciousnesses to the cloud, they might not resemble what we think of them now. You know, they might not be. Um, the way we conceive of what a mind is like today, that it might be extremely distributed and, and all over the place. And um, and so Ford may not care to be alive in a host body because he's already achieved a higher plane of existence, right? Um, is this the plot of Transcendence? I confess I did not see it. Uh, it actually is the plot of Transcendence, okay. <laughs> um, which is not a very good film. Uh, okay. But yes, good, good, uh, good call out. Good call out. So, okay. Uh, anyway, thanks so much for your emails. Keep them coming to us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. And this week's episode, Joanna, Season 2, Episode 5, Akane no Mai, it uh, really doesn't answer any of those questions. I, I, this is also the last uh, episode that I think that critics were sent uh, in their first batch of uh, Westworld episodes, right? So It's the only uh, – there's only one batch. There are no more screeners after this. Yeah, so no, no one – in the We're world, all the way down now. <laughs> no one in the world knows what happens after this episode, other than the people who helped make it. Um, yeah. So, I should also call out, by the way, that we are releasing this episode way early we usually release on like uh wednesday or so and we're releasing this way earlier uh because we had a chance to to get it onto tape before 
Um, so hopefully you enjoy this this really recent episode, like really up to date episode. Uh, I don't know that we'll be able to pull it off every week. In fact, I, I know for a fact we won't be able to pull it off every week. But um, uh, enjoy it while it lasts. So let's get into season two, episode five. The episode begins in present day, right? The latest timeline. Uh, and we see that Bernard and Strand have infiltrated the Mesa, as far as I can tell, right? There's piles of dead bodies everywhere, hosts and humans. And uh, Antoine Costa, one of the techs, is looking through the hosts and assessing the damage. Uh, and he has um, this tablet where he discovers that a third of all the hosts have been wiped clean, or as he puts it, they are like virgin. Uh, and Strand responds, so we lost a third of our IP. Uh, and everyone's trying to figure out exactly what were the sequence of events that led them to this point. Uh, so is that, did I get most of that right? Is that roughly what happened there, right? Yeah, I mean, so my understanding of why, I don't know, I'm extrapolating, but I think the reason why they've been wiped clean, why they're virgin, uh, is uh, so that they can't, uh, so that Antoine can't look at the footage mm-hmm. of what happened to them leading up to their death. Uh, and that means that um, if, if it's all a ruse and if they're not faking their deaths, but like Dolores killed them uh, or Bernard killed them or whatever, so that they could be revived um, there, you know, there will, they won't have any hint of that coming. They've deleted the security footage basically of the heist. Uh, if that's indeed what's going on. And this scene more than any other makes me really ascribe to this, subscribe to this Trojan horse idea of like, okay, all those bodies are now in the Mesa, right? Yeah. And so if, if that is indeed an army and given what we learned about Teddy in this episode, you know, like yeah. seeing him on top of the pile, like if that is an army ready and raring to go for Dolores and ready to be reactivated because we've been talking all season about how you actually kill a go- uh, a host and what matters and what doesn't, um, then she, Dolores, perhaps has successfully like smuggled her army into the Mesa, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, um, we'll but, see. It could but, be really could be really creepy scene when they all reanimate and so on. But even more interesting to me in this scene, I think, is whatever is going on with the character played by Jeffrey Wright in this scene, who is either <laughs> Arnold or Bernard, because the artist maybe... formerly known as Prince, or yeah. <laughs> uh, the character played by Jeffrey Wright, whoever that is. The character played by the actor Jeffrey Wright, whoever that is, Arnold Bernard. Dolores inside of him. Who knows? Teddy, like, potentially, te- you know. Uh, well, I mean, I think given what we saw in this episode, I bet Teddy is actually Teddy. But like, I'm just um, saying, anything's possible. Anything Diana. is possible, man. But um, <laughs> but like that look that he gave the bodies. Uh, I don't know what it. What it? How did it read to you? Uh, it, you know, to be honest, it read as like uh, bemusement. I think I'm using that term correctly. Mm. You know. Um, it read like he's this character is still trying to piece things together to me. Amused it, is like Bernard's or Arnold's or whoever's perpetual state this season, right? Right, right. It didn't. It didn't feel like aha. This is what I have planned all along. You know? No, 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 no. I don't think there's clarity, but I think I think there's some kind of like, oh right, 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 right. <laughs> That's sort of what I read like to me. <laughs> mm, nice, good, good Jeffrey Wright impression. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, okay. 
Well, we, we shall see. That's the only scene we have from modern day. And interestingly, uh, the show seems to be kind of fracturing its narratives in a pretty major way, right? Uh, this episode, uh, I, I think, had very it, – it was Dolores and basically like the Maeve Sizemore plot line. And that's it. So we didn't get – did we get any Man in Black this episode? I don't think so, right? No. Yeah, so no Man in Black. And so it feels like they're really kind of uh, dividing up – uh, the plot lines. There's also no Bernard Elsie from weeks ago. Right. 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 So uh, we just get basically like two like entirely new plot lines here. Uh, and I'm going to call a little audible here. Let's go with Dolores first if we can. Is that, right. If that's okay because I think that'll be yeah. quicker. Um, so uh, we see Dolores again in this episode and we see the player piano. I think it's playing the Sweetwater theme. Right from the Westworld soundtrack, except so. in a really jacked up fashion because there's blood all over the player piano. Ooh, fun! Yeah, yeah. And so they return to Sweetwater. It's littered with bodies, uh, but Dolores is interested in the train uh, because presumably it will take her to her father. Am I right about that? Like, no. She said when they when she left. Um... What was it? Fort of Forlorn Hope. Is that yeah. what it was called two weeks ago? She sent some of her team, I think including Angela, because I don't think we see Angela in Sweetwater. Uh, no, no, we do see Angela in Sweetwater. Okay, so she she sent some of her team out to find her father. And Teddy's like, all right, are we going to go find your father? She's like, no, we have to go to Sweetwater because there's something we need there. So like, I feel like the mission for the train and the mission for her dad are two different things. Gotcha. And she already had a plan to go to Sweetwater. And so the train is a thing that she needed, presumably, right? Right. Yeah. I think, I don't know what she needs it for, (laughs) but she needs it to go fast. And one one thing I like about both this plotline and the Maeve plotline is that both Maeve and Dolores have their like, pet techs with them and i guess uh bernard has his and elsie though like bernard is a tech himself but like both dolores and Maeve have like delos employees with like uh their tablets yeah who can help her do them do stuff with the robots you know right yeah it's dolores good. has this guy she like kidnapped in episode two i think it was and uh and Maeve has uh felix and sylvester right. the humans so. are the, the the subjugated now Yes. The yes. shoe is on the other foot. Uh, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, they go into the Mariposa, which is the kind of uh, bar slash brothel slash saloon, whatever it is. It's full of dead people. And you see Clementine is there. Uh, and man, <laughs> every scene I see her, I'm like, that. she looks rough. She looks like she's been through a lot. Uh, but... Where did we leave off with Clementine? Like, I, I think I was always confused at how Clementine came back because the last I remember seeing of Clementine in season one, uh, she was like Bernard had had programmed a very basic program into her to like potentially shoot Ford, but then like Ford turned it against Bernard. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. But, but I thought her programming had all basically been deleted. And right, so she got lobotomized with like a drill up the nostril. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, Bernard put that programming on her and then, uh, you know, who knows what Ford did, but then, uh, Maeve found her, um, in cold storage, I believe. And so I think what we're seeing is like a still mostly lobotomized, like she's like, it's like Abernathy. She and Abernathy, I think are quite similar in that they're just sort of 
they're they're spaced out, they're glitching out, they half remember who they are. I think I found this scene really haunting because you have new Clementine played by Lily Simmons, and you've got original Clementine played by Angela Serafian. I always I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but she's mm. great. They're both great, I think. And just so so to watch new Clementine say these lines we've heard her say a million times, right? Like not much of a rind on you, all of that classic Clementine stuff. And then the I my memory is the camera like pans around to reveal yeah. original Clementine, like staring at her. And, uh, it's, re- I think it's really haunting and it's just one of those, like, and we get this, um, we get a similar thing in Shogun world, but it's one of those like confrontation of your own programming by seeing someone echoing your lines, your programming, your actions, you know, and having to confront how much of your life was programmed. We see Maeve go through that a lot, you know, that sort of stuff. This is a very basic question, Joanna, but remind me, and, you know, if you know the answer, some hosts seem to still be on their loops, right? And some are not. So do we, is there an explanation of why some hosts are behaving normally and the, the rest have broken free? I mean, I don't, I don't have like the exact math on this, but it seems to me like the older, more original hosts are more woke Mm-hmm. Than the new hosts, yeah. Um, certainly, like Angela and Dolores, both of whom are original. Um, the Ghost Nation host, played by Zama McLaren, I think is also supposed to be a little bit more awake. And I think it's just sort of. I did ask um, Jonathan Tucker this when I interviewed him, who played Major Craddock. I was like, "Your your your character seems to be like awake, but not like what is." what does glory mean to him? Like what does awakeness mean to him? And I think actually the answer is uh, Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan didn't tell everyone <laughs> sort of like <laughs> what exactly they were always playing, at least not like uh, some of the more peripheral characters. Mm. And so I think what we can just say is like degrees of wokeness, like new Clementine, deeply unwoke, just on her loop, you know? <laughs> right. So. Uh, yeah, new Clementine. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Uh, so Dolores and Teddy, as you put it here in the show notes, back out in their old necking spot. Uh, yeah. So they have this kind of deep conversation about uh, life. Like Teddy, Teddy's basically trying to convince her, "Run away with me, run away with me," right? And Dolores tells this story about how there was a blue tongue amongst the amongst the cowherd, and um, how uh, he, she asked him, like Teddy, what would you do? What would you do? And he says, Well, I would like shelter the uh, the cows that were suffering. And she's like, No, we burned them all, basically, right? Save the herd, we burned them all. Uh, do you think this conversation has any metaphorical bearing on the plot? Joanna? <laughs> What's well, funny? We got an email uh, a long time ago. Um, I think after episode. Three, because Dolores had already mentioned Blue Tongue or Abernathy mentioned Blue right. Tongue to her or something like that. And so we got this email from um, a veterinarian, Jody Sexton, wrote in to us. And she was like, well, I always pay attention when people mention animal diseases in the show, as you should. And uh, and so when, she, when the first mention of Blue Tongue, she sort of perked her ears up because it's more like it's – it's a it's a disease that's that more affects sheep than cattle. So she thought it was weird they're talking about cattle and blue tongue, um, and so 
you know, she, she thought it was like a weird choice and she had a whole elaborate theory about biting insects and flies and all this sort of stuff, which I'm not sure is true, but hopefully this is the payoff for the metaphor that she was looking for. But it looks like they kind of cheated a little and used a sheep, a, a disease that usually affects sheep to talk about cow. But, but it makes sense to talk about cows, obviously, because Dolores is a rancher's daughter and, uh, there's a lot of talk in season one about when Dolores and Teddy are out there talking about the Judas steer, which is this like cat, this cow that, leads the rest of the cows home. Uh, and so a lot of people are like, is Dolores the Judas steer uh, this season? Is Maeve the Judas steer? Like, who's who's leading the cows back home? Um, I think Dolores seems like a good candidate. But obviously, like, the, the major... This is like a test conversation for Teddy, where she's like, what would you do? He gives the wrong answer. We find out later. But... Um, <laughs> He gives the nice answer, and Dolores yeah. is like, "I ain't looking for nice." So, what <laughs> other what other great meta- Dolores impression, by the way? Listen, my my impressions are top notch. You know this about me. Uh, what what other uh, metaphorical import did you want to put on this? No, TV? I think that's it. It's pretty obvious. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. Uh, you don't need to look five levels deep on that one. Not um, rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you, you know, sometimes the Nolans can be subtle, and sometimes they're extremely not subtle. And this is an example of. Uh, of them being not subtle. I know he didn't write this episode, but you know, I, I, oh. I go ahead. Last bit of uh, veterinary knowledge from Jody. She says blue tongue vaccine was first developed in 1907 by a name, by a man named Arnold. Really? Mm. is what she wrote. So. Nice. Well, I, so on that point, John, I would submit to you that uh, the blue tongue reference is perfect because it was probably, first of all, I think it's probably only backstory that it didn't actually happen in the park. And uh, probably someone wrote it without doing their full research into the topic. Yeah, that yeah? sounds like a that sounds like a classic Sizemore move to me. Classic Sizemore. <laughs> I mean, we learned this episode that Sizemore can be lazy sometimes. So true. classic true. Sizemore. Yeah. All right. So they go back to Sweetwater, and Dolores says the train will be ready in the morning. Angela has captured one of the Delos men, who reveals that Abernathy is at the Mesa. And then Teddy and Dolores have one last night question mark question mark question mark together. You've written here in the show notes. Very Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor of them. Why do you think it's their last night together, Joanna? Because uh, perhaps Teddy is going to die. No, it just it just <laughs> seemed to like lean into that classic trope of like because Dolores knows what she's about to do to him. Yeah. You know, and so she's like, okay, let's have sex one last, like, or the, for, probably for the first time, actually. And let's have sex and uh, because I'm going to kill you in the morning, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, also, sorry, this does confirm what I said, that she did send Angela out looking for her father. And Angela comes back with information yeah, yeah, of, yeah. like, your dad's in the Mesa sort of thing. So Your own show notes confirm it. Um, yes. But uh, I definitely have experience with reading things and then not retaining them. Um, so <laughs> all good. So uh, anyway, afterwards, you know, to, to I mean, what did you think of this sex scene? I thought it was kind of uh, it is it's like the first uh, lengthy sex scene we have in the show, and it's between hosts. I think that's not insignificant. We do see uh, guests having sex with hosts in the first season, but but it's not shot like this. This is shot very like lovingly and erotically, right? Yeah, we did have some, I think I would call it erotic sex between Maeve and Hector in season one. Oh, but that right. was like that was like while everything was burning down. So yeah. it was not like as if we got Rodrigo Santora's bare ass the same way we got James Marsden's bare ass, but um in a very like Kit Harrington Game of Thrones sort of reveal. But 
um, yeah, it, it, I think it was shot. It's shot very like romantically, mm. and and I think it is significant that it's it's host on host having this like very tender uh, uh, sleep well and almost likely kill you in the morning emotional sort of. Uh, connection and poor poor dumb teddy it's like whatever we do we do it together their eyes wide open you dumb dumb oh teddy <laughs> so <laughs> i think i mean i think really the the take-home message of shooting the sex scenes like this is hosts they're just like us Jonah, sure. they're just like us they can have sex too and, and love you know I anyway. mean, if you want to call it what Dolores feels for Teddy Love, okay. <laughs> so anyway, later that night, they take Teddy out back and shoot him. No, not really. I mean, they take him out back and <laughs> uh, change his personality so he's a completely different person. This is where, like, you know, people people have been pushing back against me calling Dolores like a Terminator or or not feeling very sympathetic to her towards her. This is the most monstrous thing she's done, right? Mm-hmm. Because she if like she doesn't shoot him in the head. I think shooting him in the head would be better than this, which feels like an extreme violation. Mm-hmm. And she is doing to him what all the humans did to her and all the people like her. She is becoming her oppressor. Yeah. I mean, we we talked didn't we talk last week about Animal Farm and like looking out for yep. signs of Dolores becoming like her oppressors? Like this is what that is. Like using the tablet to bump up his aggression uh, and change his personality entirely is such a violation Agreed. of someone who who just gave her so much trust and all of this. So it's I'm just like um, I'm done with you, Dolores. <laughs> You're man. done. I'm You're done. I, in terms of the filmmaking here, I mean, I think it is like a really well done scene. It just it, it's so clearly telegraphed throughout the episode that yeah, you know what I mean. It's it's not like you're. You're not shocked when this I happens. I was not shocked. No one's shocked. Yeah, I mean. I, I, I feel like we were building towards this ever since she gave him that look when he wouldn't shoot Craddock in the head. Or maybe right. even since, like, episode one of the season. Dolores has been looking at him like, I am going to have to, like, ask you to go look, imagine the rabbits, George, as I shoot you in the back of the head, basically. But it would have been, like I said, I think it would have been better if she had shot him in the back of the head than to, like... I think this is a this is a deeper violation, mm. and um, I'm really disappointed in you, Dolores. Really, really. So, well, Joanna, I got some I got some knowledge to drop on you here. Um, so, when they the ho- the sort of tech dials up um, Teddy's characteristics, did you happen to catch what characteristics they dialed up? I saw aggression. What else did you see? So I uh, so it was cruelty was dialed up oh. to the max. Self-preservation dialed up to the max, decisiveness dialed up to the max, um, loyalty and aggression uh, dialed up to the max, tenacity and courage also dialed up to the max, and um, uh, bulk apperception oh, also yeah. dialed up to the max. That's the thing in Maeve that made her super smart. And right. so, like Lisa Joy has been talking in a lot of interviews. People are like, "When will James Marsden get something to do?" And she's been like, <laughs> "Patience." Young Padawans, like there's catch a chance, like, oh, catch a chance. Thank you. We have signs. We are legion. Uh, she's in like there's she she said I think in an interview last week, not to me but to someone else that like uh, Marsden's arc is her favorite arc. Mm. So my hope is we're about to get to see Marsden do something really fun. 
hopefully. Because, like, I feel like the show has just wasted Marsden for, like, a season and a half. Um, he's, like, he is, of course, so handsome and all this sort of stuff. And he can play sort of the the dumb-dumb, like, sidekick fine. But Marsden, like, has interesting layers i think that he can show and that he has shown in other things and i'm excited to see what he's going to do cruelty that's fascinating i'm glad i'm glad you freeze framed and wrote down all of those uh, oh uh, what makes you don't what makes you think i don't just have a photographic memory john come on (laughs) i mean your bulk apperception must be all the way up to the top that's right that's right that's what perception apperception apperception and according to a quora page aka some random person on the internet (laughs) <laughs> the term apperception originates with Descartes and was developed oh. by Kant, and in its most basic definition refers to introspective self-consciousness. More specifically, though, it means the process of understanding something in terms of previous experiment, uh, experience. Uh, quote, the process by which new experience is assimilated to and transformed by the residuum of past experience of an individual to form a new whole, end quote, as Dagobert D. Runes put it in his 1942 Dictionary of Philosophy. So. I mean, thank you for bringing all of this knowledge to this episode of Decoding Westworld. I really appreciate it. I'm just trying to, like, sort of come correct with Jonah Robinson I, on the show, you know? I love it. I love it. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. There's some information on what's going on with Teddy, and I, so, I assume we'll find out in a future episode what the results of that will be. What I would say is we're about to see some disturbing behavior from Teddy. That's a James Marston reference. <laughs> yep. yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a 1998 pull for you right there. I mean, yeah. I have a feeling <laughs> that uh, we will be looking at his role as though we were a cyclops. No. As though um, he's wearing 27 dresses. Yeah, yeah. We're going to need 27 <laughs> dresses to get through the rest of this. There's uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I mean, you wouldn't want to anchor man to the legend continues on his past personality. I frankly, I'm enchanted by what's about to come. Was he an enchanted? Yes. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> he seemed to have a really high sex drive with Dolores in this episode. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, um, William's daughter was looking in her the notebook. Okay, I'm stop. <laughs> yeah, don't try to keep Teddy in the box. Let him out. Okay, mm, let's just, nice, nice. Let's just. I mean, Dolores has some unfinished business. All right, Superman returns. All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Before we move on to the other plot line, we got to thank all the people who helped to make Decoding Westward. That entire awesome pun run was brought to you by the following individuals. <laughs> all right. Rick Nguyen, Michael Riccardi, Kurt O'Schlager, Lee Wallant, J.R., Keith Barber, Paul Yen, Nick Giller, <laughs> Keith Barber, Barber like a haircut. Thank you for that, Keith Barber. Uh, Paul Yen, Nick Gillard, Joel Miller, Chloe from Estepona in Spain, oh. Morton Dahl, Gervino Guerrera, Gervino, Gervino Guerrera. No, I'm doing it all wrong. Gervino Guevara. That's what it is. Sorry, oh. I, I don't know how I messed that up. Jack. Charlie Leishman, Che from Austin, Art Hennessy, Justin Camps, uh, jo- Josh Huffines, Shuffin 
Trains, Simon Howard, Ted Abernathy, J.P. Gagan, Sean Murphy, P. Rock, uh, Simon Williams, Brian V. Hughes, Carrie Tyson, and Ian Robbins. Whew! Kind of a kind yeah. of a tough tough run today for me. How about you, Joanna? Right. Who do you want to let's, thank? Let's see. Let's let's uh, let's bump my bulk app perception all the way up. Now you're just misusing it, but. God damn it. Right. Uh, Sophie Johnson from Norway. Ginevra. Yeah. DiLorenzo. Nerdy Dad Online. Lily Anderson. Ben Anderson. Ben Anderson. Sorry, I think that was Na- my fault. Okay. Nathan Junko. Nathan and Junko. Aaron Southard. Yes. Nailed it. Rob Cohen. Danuen. Waiko. Uh, Rinsberger. <laughs> nice. Andy Potts. Christian Grams. That, still, that felt like a trap. Uh, Kate Rarick. Oh, Sarah Wingo. <laughs> Carter Rogers. Chris Wiest, I believe, like Diane Wiest. Uh, Sean. Oh, no. <laughs> Sean Van Damey. Uh, Nicholas Hayden, Topher McCulloch, Abraham Zabi, Callie Karnemark, Adrian Hahn, Mona Johansson, Aya Galloway. Yep. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> Jana Gardner. Nice. <laughs> and then last but not least, Anne. Okay. Do you think it's a, T sound or a D sound at the beginning? It's a T sound, right? Yeah. Ta- okay. Tawarodome. And Tawarodome. Yeah, okay. Tawarodome. Wow. Right. Um, that was uh, pretty rough all around for both of us, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what can we say? The people uh, who support this show have really awesomely elaborate names. It's not just the names. It's like the fun. Like I, I I'm trying to pronounce the name and read the pronunciation guide that they themselves provided at the same yes. time. I was on the edge of my that, seat. I was on the some, edge of my seat. All uh, right. Sometimes that that messes me up more than if probably if I just rolled through it. Anyway, I feel the same way. It's a way. fun. It's a fun game. Let's go to Shogun World. Shogun World. So uh, we see. So this basically. Uh, shockingly, Joanna, you know, at, at the end of season two, episode three, when a uh, samurai came out of nowhere and, you know, slashed Maeve, didn't actually didn't actually kill Maeve. I know that was something that a lot of people were worried about. What? Uh, but Maeve survived. She, she got out of the way. Johnson anyway, lives. Maeve, Armistice, Sizemore, Hector, and the techs Sylvester and Felix are captured. Uh, they are... Led by a uh, man uh, named Musashi, who's played by Hiroyuki Sanada. And for those who don't know, Hiroyuki Sanada, awesome actor who's been in uh, like really great films. Like I, I really loved his performance in uh, Sunshine, for instance, the Danny Boyle film. He's also in The Wolverine. Uh, Last Samurai. Yeah, Last Samurai. I mean, I was bringing up good films, Jonna, so. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, this guy is is a total badass. Lost. <laughs> you know what's great about uh, Hiroyuki Sonata and Rodrigo Santoro, who plays uh, Hector, both in Lost. Mm. Just putting that out there. Nice. So, 
anyway, Maeve tries to use the uh, her, her kind of voice of God and try to like reprogram them, but it doesn't work. Um, and then she is gagged. Later, uh, it's explained that the reason it didn't work was because she spoke in the wrong language. I think it's, what's that yeah. explains to her, right? Which might explain why when she was trying to talk to Ghost Nation uh, right. two episodes ago, her commands didn't work on them because she wasn't speaking Lakota. So, yeah. I do think that the the kind of exposition. So, I, like, I, I'm not I'm not gonna uh, go scene by scene with this Shogun world because I think there's just like too much stuff to cover. But I think that uh, you know we, we want to highlight a, a few key moments and this whole idea of Maeve and the extent of her powers I think is is really interesting. Sizemore kind of explains. Um, that oh hey all of you actually have the language it, the power was inside the ability to speak Japanese was inside you all along he says right me too no um, no yeah <laughs> I, I did think it was it, it is kind of cool like there is a lot of exposition in this episode I think the 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 Mave powers right like for that to really land in the way that the show wants it to land you have to have understood that Mave's powers came from her ability to say them out loud. Right? Mm-hmm. Was that something that you had grasped prior to this episode? Because I never really connected her saying it out loud to her actually doing it. I thought it's just like she's reconfiguring the code. Like whether she says it out loud, it doesn't really matter. The show has laid enough track to do that, but that wasn't really a connection I had made. How about you? Um. Yeah. I think I think that that's um something that um made sense to me. Because yeah. uh, basically, uh, there's this big moment where yeah. she she's like gagged. And she's able to make a dude kill herself, uh, kill himself, even without being able to to tell him, right? And that's like a critical moment. Like, oh my gosh, your powers are far beyond uh, what we thought they were. But like for me, it didn't really, it didn't really land that way. Yeah, just because I, I didn't, I never thought that it was really that connected with her ability to speak. So it felt to me like this episode is setting up that it's connected to her ability to speak the commands, and then also kind of paying it off at the same time, which I felt was a little bit abridged for me, but. Um, yeah, so I um, I talked to Simon Quarterman, who plays Lee Sizemore for Vanity Fair. You can read about that on VanityFair.com or listen to the interview itself on the other podcast I do, Still Watching Westworld. But uh, I asked him about all the exposition he has to deliver in this episode, which is just like so much. Yeah, it's so and I was like, I was like, how did like I I actually think he does an amazing job with it. I think the writers and his performance combined to like, even though we can tell there's a lot of exposition going on, I don't think it feels feels like labored and i was like you you kept it really light and funny i think you know and and so and he, you know he was like sort of laughed about that he was like yeah i saw all these like pages of dialogue where i just had to explain everything and i was like oh god and he said at first like the first time they shot it or, or in the early conceptions he was sort of explaining to everyone as they're walking into shogun world and then they decided to just narrow it down to like him talking to mave um her being like gagged and just giving him reactions and that sort of helped explain why he was like nattering on and stuff like that. And, um, I don't know. I just, I just, I think his performance in this episode, not just like all the exposition he has to give, but also like the, um, as representative of the larger thing this episode does, which is tell a Japanese story through the Western lens, um, is really, really fascinating. So, yeah, I I think, uh, it's really hard to to write lots of exposition and do it in a way that feels organic, and I think this episode yeah. did a great job. You know, um, sometimes the, the show does not do a good job, 
but this is an episode where it all felt pretty pretty good to me with with the minor exception of the whole Maeve and not being able to speak the commands and that kind of thing like i felt like that was a little bit rushed but everything else i thought was really great and i thought simon quartermain did a great job so uh um and the other thing is I want to say is, do you know the significance of the name Musashi? Uh, no, I don't. So, so Miyamoto Musashi is a really famous um, swordsman, philosopher, writer, Ronin um, from the like, uh, 16, 15, uh, 16th, 17th century. And so the character's named for that. And so uh, not to, I, I, I'm not trying to like just flog my own work or whatever, but I talked to uh, Hiroyuki Sonata about his, about Musashi and, and his portrayal. And he was like, he's like, yeah, originally I kind of wanted to like really honor Musashi in my portrayal. He's like, but the, the dude's top knot looked like a pineapple and we decided that would look too stupid. So <laughs> we decided not to do that. He's like, but I decided to honor him in other ways. Like the, whenever he fight, if he fights, when he fights with two swords in this episode, that's like a classic Musashi technique and stuff like that. So there are ways in which they want to do that. But what, to go back to what I said about like a Japanese story through the Western lens, like, uh, it sort of reminds me of Isle of Dogs where oh I forget what the uh, what's the main kid's name in Isle of Dogs isn't it like Atari or something yeah, like Atari, that yeah Atari that's right like of course you would name your main swordsman in your Shogun World plotline Musashi Lee Sizemore mm. like oh the most famous <laughs> um, samurai I'll go ahead and and name my main character that you know sort of thing so yeah. um, I thought that was interesting yeah, and before we continue, because we are going to pick this thing apart a little bit. Yeah. Um, b- before we continue, I do want to just say that it's just extraordinary that we can watch the show, and one week we have this really crazy and fairly well-executed sci-fi storyline of this guy trying to build a robot version of his father-in-law <laughs> over the right. course of many decades – and then this week we're in a freaking Japanese drama, you know what I mean? Uh, in, set in like samurai era Japan. Uh, very few shows can achieve that level of diversity and and do so at a very high level of executional excellence. And I think uh, this show does it. And I, I just think it is remarkable and it's worth like kind of just saying that before we comment any more on the episode. At least that's my opinion. Any- yeah, I mean, I th- I thought it was absolutely beautiful, breathtaking, and and the possibility that it hints at in terms of like, if this robot revolution keeps our characters in the parks for seasons to come, right? The possibility for different parks that they can explore and different um, styles and cultures that they can dip into are, if not endless, then you know, like pretty pretty uh, wide, pretty broad, you know? Um, And just to reiterate what I said before, like I think there was a lot of hesitation when the Shogun World idea was first announced, um, especially given conversations that you and I, Dave Chen, have had and a lot of film uh, writers and film thinkers have been having about uh, cultural appropriation, Orientalism, like what does it mean for, um, you know, Lisa Joy is, is I think half Asian, uh, though not Japanese. And, but what does it mean for a Western show like Westworld to do a Japanese plot? And is this going to be problematic? And I think a few things save that. First of all, they paid enormous attention to detail, Hero told me like they basically essentially hired Hero on as like not just to perform in this episode, but to be like 
a consultant on right. everything. So he came to set every single day, uh, not the days he was shooting to make sure that everything was co- like that they came correct. But also he was pointing out to me, he's like, but also this is a theme park, right? This, these are Westerners doing a Japanese thing. So if there, if we, if there are errors in there, we left them in there intentionally because this isn't supposed to be like a perfect representation of Japan. This is supposed to be Japan through the Western lens. And so something that Jonah Nolan mentioned before the season started was that this episode was such a, like an homage to Kurosawa. And if you know anything about the Japanese director, Akira Kurosawa, you know that he, uh, and I don't know a ton. I'm not going to pretend I know a ton, but like, you, you know that he drew from Western culture, right? He adapted Shakespeare. He was inspired by John Ford. He like, he borrowed from all this Western stuff was something that inspired him. And then Western films, uh, in turn, borrowed from Kurosawa. So Seven Samurai becomes Magnificent Seven. Uh, I think your Jimbo becomes The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, something like that. You know, like that. That it was just like this dialogue back and forth between Western culture and Japanese filmmaking uh, in the era of Kurosawa. And so when you get what you get in this episode, which is uh, Westworld, <laughs> the Mariposa heist done in Japanese style that's brilliant. That's so good. Like I, like, I don't know if you felt the same way, but like as soon as, um, the music kicked up, right. Um, the Mariposa heist music, which is the stones, right. I freaked out. (laughs) Like, and, and as soon as I realized what they were doing, you know, the, the characters narrate, they're like, this feels familiar, a little too familiar. Um, and then you see the tattoo on, um, you know, the, the girl with the dragon tattoo sort of situation. I, I lost my mind. I was so excited and I thought it was great. What did, what did you think when all that? It was very cool. Like, I think what was really impressive is that it's, it's like in many ways, a shot for shot remake, Mm -hmm. right, right down to like both the camera angles and also uh, like there's slow motion in both scenes, you know, like the style is, is as close as possible, but with Mm -hmm. different characters this time. Uh, Tao, uh, Akimoto plays the woman who um, has the uh, the dragon on her the dragon tattoo. Uh, mm-hmm. She's also you may recognize her as uh, the love interest Mariko in the Wolverine, uh, the Hugh Jackman movie. Uh, but yeah, I uh, I thought it was it's pretty cool. It does it does raise some interesting questions though, Joanna Robinson about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we got an email about this, maybe one or two about how sharp-edged weapons work in Westworld, right? Like bullets. Mm, yeah, sure. Bullets, you can figure something out. But like, uh, what about arrows that go through people or like knives and swords? How do you prevent knives and swords from doing damage to, to guests? Uh, you know, maybe it's something we just have to overlook. I, I doubt it's something that the show will even ever explain, but uh, do you have any theories on that? I don't. Yeah, I, don't I, I have no, no idea. It's just, no. I think you just have to accept that, hey, um, guests aren't going to cut each other with samurai swords, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and go from there. But, I mean, we do see Tao Akimoto totally, you know, pull a Legolas and um, shoot 50 <sighs> dudes in, like, a pan of 30 seconds. So it was pretty amazing. I just lost my shit. <laughs> and, like, you, you want to talk about, like, um, immediately – when we mentioned the introduction of Emily played by Katya Herbers in like Raj world in episode two um, or episode three, um, 
I, I mentioned it as like a successful uh, addition, uh, a successful version of introducing a character that you're immediately like excited about and want to see more of. And, um, and someone, uh, some, one of our listeners raised uh, the opposite version of that, which is, uh, you know, not spoilers for Lost necessarily, but like this is a Lost reference that maybe not everyone will get. But Nikki and Paolo are famously hated characters from season two of Lost, one of whom was played by Rodrigo Santoro. But uh, that, that those are characters that are introduced and everyone watching the show was like, no, boo, we hate them, you know. And so like it can be done poorly. I felt I felt exactly that way about this episode is like every single character musashi um i think the girl with the dragon tattoo is called hana rio um sakura who spoiler alert does not make it through the episode akane like all of them i i was just immediately engrossed and excited by them but but maybe especially the girl with the dragon tattoo (laughs) when she starts firing those arrows over like sylvester and felix's shoulders it's just it's thrilling i loved it agreed agreed um so uh, I, I was also really fascinated by this scene where Sizemore is describing the narrative. You know, I'm like that person that used to watch a bunch of director's commentaries. Mm-hmm. And you're basically watching a director's commentary on yeah. screen with the yeah. real-life theme party. He's like, well, this is the scene when this such and such happens. Oh, my gosh, that's not supposed to happen. You know, he's just kind of describing what the storyline was supposed to be and how it how it changes. Um. But uh, but essentially, you know, to, to kind of fast forward a little bit, all of it is, is kind of building up to this big confrontation uh, that may – well, no, prior to the big confrontation, you know, that Maeve and, and Rinko Kikuchi's character uh, – Akane. Akane, right? And, and we should point out, by the way, that Akane no Mai translated means, I believe, Akane's dance. Yes. Uh, for those who are curious what that title means, uh, that's the, the title of the episode. Uh, you know, Maeve and Akane have this kind of – really deep conversation uh, where they kind of reflect on their shared reality before they perform this dance uh, for the Shogun. And uh, uh, and I thought that was really an interesting conversation. Let's talk a little bit about that. But then, you know, it, it builds up to this big confrontation where Sakura is killed uh, and then Maeve kind of uh, goes full, uh, what is it, uh, Eleven from Stranger Things or uh, Firestarter, you know, what, whatever. Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever analogy you want to use. But, you know, she starts using her powers in a really major way at the end there. So let, let's talk about that that penultimate scene, right, where Maeve has kind of a revelation about uh, freedom and what it means to be truly free. And, and she kind of decides to not grant Akane the quote-unquote gift of understanding what her true situation is. Did I read that correctly? Is that your interpretation? Yeah, and I really, and it felt to me like the exact opposite of what Dolores did to Teddy. Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. she respects Akane's choice because there's there's been a couple, um, God, I can't remember who else says it, but Maeve certainly says like, please, please, like the pain is all I have left of her when her daughter dies in season one. And I want to say it's like Arnold says similar about maybe about Charlie. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this idea that like, um, I don't, I don't need to be like, I, I need to hold on to that. I need to hold on to this pain, this life, all of this, like, don't take this from me. I don't want to know this other thing. 
I don't know. I just it. it um, it's Dolores actually that says right. The pain is all I have left of him. Okay. Um, okay. About her parents. Yeah. About her parents. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, like it, it's this. It's this. Yeah. Plea for plea for sort of mercy, and um, and I, I don't know. Maybe that's messy. Maybe it's not related. But like I, I just. I just love Maeve in this scene. And, and yeah, we get, it's, um, it's once again, it's a, a loop back, right? Because Akane is telling the story that we heard Maeve, we heard Maeve tell in season one about like, uh, when I got, it's this scene we see, I think like three different times in season one where Maeve is talking about when she got off the boat, uh, she heard someone say something to her and they said this and I don't know, you here you can be whatever you want to be right. or whatever. And um, it's something we saw Maeve do a bunch of times and Akane tells her own version of that story. And it's not just used as a loop back the way the Mariposa heist was used as a loop back, but it's um, it, it advances her character. And I just think that's really clever writing. Right. And, yeah. You use um, the same, it's, it's same, same thing as they did last week, right? Where you, you have the same conversation that you've seen before, right. but it's in a completely different context and it's used to move the story and the character forward. Yeah. Uh, really well done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, the, and you, you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording about this idea of like, who does Sakura represent? Um, is she the daughter figure that parallels Maeve's daughter? Uh, is she the Clementine figure? I think she's both. I think she's like a combination of Clementine and Maeve's daughter. Um, you know, and it, 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 it kind of didn't occur to me until I thought about that, that Clementine existed for Maeve as sort of in the park, a substitute for her daughter. Like she still gets to be kind of maternal to someone, even though she lost her daughter. And, um, I mean, we should, uh, we, we called out, um, Hiroyuki's entire filmography and also James Parsons' entire filmography, but we should talk about what a powerhouse Rinko Kikuchi is and how exciting it is for her to be on the show. Uh, you know, Brothers Bloom, uh, Academy Award nominee for Babel, uh, you know, obviously the classic Pacific Rim, uh, the even more classic Pacific Rim Uprising, you know, Kamiko the Treasure Hunter, like Rika Kikuchi is a freaking phenom, and I am so excited that they got her for this. I think she's extraordinary. Um, and then, and then just the beauty of her dance, the fact this is called Akane's dance, like, oh my god, it doesn't it feel like immediately iconic? To you, it does to me. I don't know. I don't. Maybe I should dial down my. No, no, yeah. Over this let's episode, let's let's, like, uh, let's geek out about it. I, I agree. Yeah. I think it's a great scene, and uh, I think also the scene when hell is breaking loose around them, and Maeve is slowly kind of walking down that platform is like an iconic mm-hmm. shot in in this mm-hmm. show's history. Um, yeah, I, I really the whole thing was just so well executed, and. But but if you think about the function of it, like why did they go? Why did they need to go to Shogun World? Why did what was the purpose of bringing these characters to Shogun World from a storytelling perspective? Uh, and I, I just think like the purpose was that they they wanted to kind of sh- like I have some speculation, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm curious what you, what your ideas are. But like yeah. the speculation is like just that they wanted to show like Sizemore has these stories, but like that they manifest themselves differently in different cultures, right? Mm. Yeah, uh, and the, the, there's this kind of idea that like even though cultures are really different, like the West and Samurai world, you know, like all this stuff. It, it, there, there, there are very common threads that bind us all. Like there are common stories that bind us all. Um, 
as humanity, even though obviously we're seeing hosts, you know, play these things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's something about this kind of the the universality of some of the stories we tell each other that kind of is present in here. Um, but also, I think, as you rightly point out, it's for like Maeve to have that big moment where she is confronted with a character who's an, an, an analog of her and is able to like show compassion to her in a way that she wouldn't have shown herself, you know, or that she wouldn't want for herself. Uh, and if that is true, if that is the reason why uh, they brought us to Shogun World, just just to do that, uh, man, that is really commitment to that piece of story. To, like, to create a whole other universe and all these other characters and populated by all these amazing actors and these incredible action scenes and dance scenes, just for, like, this sort of character development, I just got to admire the commitment to that. What do you think? Well, yeah, and I think I think part of it also, I mean, the thing that I love about Westworld is that um, they wanted to do that, but I, I do think they also just wanted to do a Japanese story, you know? <laughs> and that's something that Wes Anderson said about Isle of Dogs without having, like, the thematic... Uh, muscle to back it up. Mm. Do you know what I mean? He's yeah. like, I just want to do a Japanese story and also had this other idea about dogs. You know, whereas I think Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan were like, we want, we just want to do a Japanese story because we love Kurosawa and stuff like that. Um, but also, let's figure out a really good reason to go there. And I think they did. I think it's a really good reason. And, um, you know, Maeve, Maeve levels up here right um in her in her godlike powers and um we get a lot a bunch of information about the world and um like you know a couple nitty-gritty things that we haven't talked about is that um this idea of the doppelbots right which is that like when um a robot meets itself there or it's doppelganger there's this um like a a weird unpredictable reaction there's like a a sexual thing for the women with the tattoos Uh, there's like this weird aggression for musashi and hector and um I don't know. It, it sort of reminded me of something that Ford said in season one, where he said to Dolores, um, I've kept you separated from Bernard because you're unpredictable. The way you interact is unpredictable. Um, and so it makes me wonder like what the connection is between Bernard and Dolores. And maybe if we think back to their meeting in the fort, which was kind of like weirdly sexual and weirdly aggressive, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know what that means, but, but anyway, so that's the thing, like the idea of the doppelbot, um, we also saw Sizemore grab a radio. So Sizemore now has a radio, whatever he's going to do with it. We don't know yet. Uh, and then the, the teams split up, uh, in a f- kind of fun way. We've got the two doppelbots together, right? Uh, Hector and Musashi and the, the women with their tattoos. And then you've got, um, Akane, Maeve, uh, Lee, Felix and Sylvester is another grouping. They seemed like, you know, quite separate by the time the episode ended. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I, you know, I know some people who have seen this episode who are frustrated because they feel like Maeve's search for her daughter is being sort of prolonged unnecessarily or put off. But I, I, I think this is just such a worthwhile detour to take. 
you know, if indeed it winds up just being a detour. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but really, it's it just, I, I'm just, re- you know, I, I may have issues with how much of a detour it is or how relevant it is to the kind of, uh, the move, the show's, uh, broader themes and story, but I'm just mm. so impressed that we can sit down on a Sunday evening and right? turn it on the TV and there's you just have no idea what the heck you're going to see. You just, it, just, it reminds me of Twin Peaks in that way, right? right you know? Right. Yeah. Um, I love it. And, Raj and the World, fact- you know, we, we had no idea that was going to happen. You know, like, yeah, who, and who, the, who knows where we're going to go next week? You know, it's crazy. And the, yeah, and the fact that the... <sighs> you know, prestige Sunday night, but still like populist show entertainment is like, yeah, we're going to do uh, what? 60% of the show in Japanese. Yeah. Here we go. Oh this man. That happening. was so awesome. Like I'm glad yeah. they didn't have people talking with like in English and Japanese accents. Absolutely. You know, they could have done that, but they didn't. That was awesome. Yeah. So great really commitment. I, I really, uh, you know, I, I, yeah. I appreciated oh, this episode as a, as a piece of standalone entertainment. And I think yeah. I'm holding out judgment on whether, it does a good job of fitting into the rest of the show, you know? So. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I'll say is something that I love that they sort of messed with is this idea of the, the Shogun. The Shogun is this like mad tyrant, um, mm. you know, which is also something that like Kurosawa has, you know, and other Japanese uh, storytellers have explored is this like, well, and Western ones too. A mad tyrant is something that we've seen. But like for him to be insane because of his like, cortical fluid malfunction is is a great like little thing right like he's gone bananas because his cortical fluid is leaking out of his ears so it's yeah. uh it's really fun agree i i just yeah i'm i like this season i think a lot of people were a little iffy on the first three three episodes of this season and i don't really blame them but i think season four i i just loved so episode much episode four yeah sorry episode four i love so much because of the uh as you said uh the sci-fi like jim dello stuff and then this is just like westworld just hardcore leveling up and um yeah i mean episode for, from my perspective episode four and five justify the existence of the season already like yeah even if the see the whole season goes downhill from here it's okay because we were able to get episode four and five. Like that yeah. was that's like any show on television right now would be lucky to have episodes as good as episode four and five, in my opinion. So, and episode four, I think, was my favorite episode of Westworld to that date Agreed. until episode five. I feel the same way. So the same way. Yeah. you know, I just I'm really excited. I'm so pleased because I was actually worried by the way that they were talking about it. I thought Shogun World was going to be a, a contained sort of bottle. Uh, episode the way that Jonah Nolan talked about it before the season started, but uh, it's my understanding that we will be getting these characters at least for a little, I don't know, I don't know, one more episode, who knows, but like their story isn't done, you know, like as evidenced by the way this episode ends and like the way that Maeve ends it with like, I found my voice. Now let's use it. I mean, come on, picking up the, picking up the sword. Oh, so good. So (laughs) here we go. Alrighty. Uh, well, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Decoding Westworld. You can always write into us. Let us know your theories and speculation and uh, corrections. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. Don't, don't let us know the corrections. <laughs> we already get those on Twitter. But I am curious if anyone like thought the, um, you know, if anyone thought the use of Japanese storytelling or Eastern storytelling was at all like struck a wrong note with them. I don't yeah. think it did, but if it did to anyone listening, like I'm, I'd be interested to know. And, um, 
and I guess uh, one last shout out to the music throughout this episode, which was uh, glorious. So agreed. Um, decodingwestworld at gmail dot com. John Robinson, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find all my extra stuff around this episode, including um, some interviews, et cetera, et cetera, on vanityfair.com. Follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. Find me at Twitter uh, at Dave Chensky, Dave Chen SKY, and also on YouTube, youtube.com slash Dave Chensky, Dave Chen SKY. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 